We are in John chapter 6 this morning. We have made the step into this monumental chapter, uh, one of the, it's actually the longest chapter in the New Testament. Wonderful chapter of just richness and glories that I'm really looking forward to as we uh, dig in. We're going to look at verses 1 through 15 this morning. So John chapter 6, 1 through 15. If you're new to the Bible, don't be afraid to ask somebody for some help. Uh, John's in the New Testament. The big numbers are the chapters. The small numbers are the verses. I want you to follow along. I'll be teaching from the ESV, the English Standard Version. And so encourage you to follow along. I'm going to read this for us, and then we will uh, look at what God has to say to us. Someone's not happy. <laughs> John chapter 6, 1 through 15. Let me read this for us. After this... Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two denarii worth of bread would not be enough to each of them get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much that we are able to see Jesus Christ. And I pray that that's exactly what this text will do, that you will open our eyes to Jesus as the great provider, the one that answers all of our needs. I pray, Father, that you would help us to, to draw closer to you during this time. Father, I pray that you would help us to be transformed by the renewal of our minds, that we would all leave here different than we walked in. 
Father, I ask what we know not, you would teach us, and what we are not, you would make us. What we have not, you would give us by your grace, for your glory, in Christ's name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. So here we are in John chapter 6, looking at one of the most well-known stories in all of the Bible. Most people are very familiar with this story. They've heard this story told many ways, many times. This story is one of the most remarkable stories for many reasons. In fact, aside from Jesus Christ's resurrection, uh, this is the only miracle that all four gospel writers record together. Uh, This really further communicates the significance of what we have before us, and it really demands our attention. Most people love stories. Uh, we, we like stories. That's why we watch movies or read books or watch TV or go to shows or plays or whatever. But we, we like a good story. We want something that grabs our attention, that pulls us in, that helps us to, to see something Clearly, uh, we've started in our home reading the Chronicles of Narnia. I started reading them to Zion and Titus, our six-year-old and our three-year-old. We do one chapter before bed uh, almost every night. And our kids love it. I mean, they are just like tuned in. We get done with the chapter, and they're like, can we read another one? Like, please, one more. And uh, I don't give in, although they're really cute and they're really uh, just um, intentional with continuing to ask and to plead. Uh, but they're, they're captivated by the storyline. They're, they're drawn into something that's happening. And this is how God has created us. He, he's made us to enjoy, to appreciate, to be captivated by stories. If you don't know, the the Bible is one big story. Uh, From Genesis to Revelation, it is God's story, his redemptive story, his plan of salvation, the way that he would reveal himself to his people and then would send a Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is indeed the main character of God's story. And then all throughout the Bible, we see little stories that further communicate this, that, that highlight the big story in different ways. And that's exactly what we see in front of us today. We see a, a little story that points to the reality that Jesus Christ is the great provider that God has promised since the beginning of time. It says, here he is. This is Jesus. This is the one who has come. And John records this miraculous event to further support his purpose statement, which he's given us in John 20, 31. Remember this. I've, I've said this over and over, and I, I want you, church, I want you to know that this is the point of John's gospel. Uh, most of the gospels don't give us a, a thesis statement like this, so it, it's important that we know this. In John 20, 31, he says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing, what? You may have life in his name. 
These things are written so we have life in Christ. That's the goal of John's gospel. So let's take a look at this story as we aim to grow more in our love and understanding of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, there's usually four parts to a, a story. That we, there's four that we see here. Uh, first, we'll see a setting. Then we'll see a problem. Uh, then we'll see a resolution. And then we'll see the result. So first we see the setting that the crowd gathers. The crowd gathers. Then we'll see that the crowd has a great need. The crowd has a great need. That's the problem. And then we'll see that Jesus provides above and beyond. Jesus Christ provides a solution. He, he has the resolution that is needed. But the result in this story is that the crowd misses the point. They miss the point of what is happening. So let's look at this here. Let's look at verses 1 through 4. Read this. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And the large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So stop there. So here we have the setting of this story. We get a lot of clues as to what is going on here. The setting of a story is always important. And here John lays out some very specific details that we need to take note of. First, we notice that John uses this phrase, after this. He says, after this, in verse 1 of chapter 6. So it begs the question, like, after what? <laughs> like, so what are we saying? Like, after what is happening here? And what's going on here is that John is simply moving his reader from uh, sequential movements. He's from one thing to another. He's saying, now here from the time that their last setting of chapter 5 where they were together, uh, at, where Jesus has healed the man at Bethesda. And he's saying that, so now we're moving from that setting to now this setting in chapter 6. Um, this phrase does not necessarily mean that the miracle before has happened immediately after the discourse that we just finished studying last week. Remember where the Jewish leaders, they've confronted Jesus because he's healed this man. They're uh, simply putting him on trial. They're saying, you've, you've done this thing on the Sabbath, and now you're claiming to be God, and uh, we're going to interrogate you. This doesn't happen immediately after this. Instead, this is a general term used to help the reader follow along. However, John does give us a timestamp here. If you look at the text here, you'll see that it says the Passover was at hand in verse 4. You see that? Passover is at hand. And this is the second of three Passovers that John mentions in his gospel account, and all of which have significance in their placement. Here, the placement tells us that the timing of this miracle is likely around what we would call springtime. Uh, it's likely around March or April. 
Based on this placement, based on this time stamp that we see, we can confidently say that at least six months or maybe even a year has gone by since the end of chapter 5. So we can at least say six months. Some scholars say it's been about a year. And listen, that's important to note, not just so we have a good grasp of the timing, but so we can see that the large, why the large crowd is following him. There, there's a large crowd that is making their way. They're, they're following Jesus wherever he goes. And we read that they're following him because what? He's doing signs. He, he's doing stuff. He's, he's drawing a crowd because of the signs and the miracles that he is doing on the sick. So, since chapter 5, some time has gone by. There's some things that have happened here, and Jesus has performed a lot of miracles, and because of the miracles that he's performed, the word has gotten out. There's a lot of things that are happening, and people are talking about what this man, Jesus Christ, is doing. And so now people are following Jesus to see what is he going to do next. What's he going to do? This is kind of like our modern-day reality TV shows, where people are kind of just following, and they're searching, and they're, they're looking to see, like, what's going to happen next? What drama is going to unfold before our eyes that we can see and we can be entertained by? People are just constantly tuning in, basically, to kind of see what is going on here. I mean, it's right to say at this point, these people aren't following Jesus because they rightly understand and love Jesus Christ for who he really is. They're following Jesus. You see here that at the end of this chapter, we know this because most of these people, they, they depart from Jesus. They leave. They, they don't continue to follow him when Jesus does not do what they want him to do. Essentially, when Jesus stops giving them stuff, when he stops entertaining them, they depart from Christ. These people are after the signs. They're after miracles. They're after excitement. They're after the experience that Jesus Christ's presence affords them. And such is the case today when we see so many people chasing the signs and wonders and benefits of Christ. First asking, what can Jesus do to cure my physical depravity? rather than asking the most important question is, what has Jesus done that cures my spiritual depravity? That's the point. Brothers and sisters, this begs the question, what is your motivation for following Christ? What are you motivated by? Why are you motivated to follow Jesus? Are you a part of the crowd that follows him to see what he might do next to better your situation? Your sign chaser? 
Do something else, Jesus. Come on. Be completely satisfied, as we should be, with what Jesus has done, what he has done eternally to, to benefit us as his people. Are you okay with never seeing another tangible blessing here on earth? If you were struck with illness right now, diagnosed with something terminal that just would cause you pain and agony for the rest of your days on earth, would Jesus Christ be enough? Brothers and sisters, we must not follow Jesus solely in hopes of a better life now. Listen, sure, there are real, tangible blessings we have now as Christians, amen? I mean, there are tangible blessings. God is a a giver of all good things. But if that is the sole motivation of following Christ, it will not sustain through the difficult days we are told will come. It will not sustain us because when those things are stripped away, likely our following will be sure to follow. We must take notice also that while the mention of the Passover here helps us chronologically, there's also much theological significance to the timing of this miracle as well. If you remember, we've talked about this before, for the Jews, the Passover uh, was very significant. It would be similar to the 4th of July in our day, in America, right? We celebrate our freedom. Uh, we've, we've, been, we've been freed. And in the same way, the Passover was a very well-known celebration, whether people participated or not, they, they knew about this. And this commemorated, it celebrated the Passover when God's provision and promise to deliver his people out of the bondage of slavery has come to pass. He, he takes them from slavery. He, if you recall, the Passover lamb that God had given instructions the, that he would uh, pass over those who spread the blood of the lamb. And in the same way, that's what Jesus is pointing to here himself, that he is the final Passover lamb. He's saying what happened then, what you recall in this season, this Passover season, I have now come to fulfill once and for all. So here in verse 4, when John mentions that the Passover was at hand, it, I mean, it, this really sets up the rest of chapter 6 that we're going to spend some time looking at. It, it really sets things up as we see Jesus go on to describe the fact that his flesh is the, the, the real bread, the, the real bread of life that must be given for true eternal life. So here in this miracle, there's a a bit of a typology that is presented. Jesus shows himself as the better Moses. He's the one that better mediates between God and man. He, He provides eternal bread, not just temporary manna as Moses did. And remember, this would be fresh on this crowd's mind. 
It's the Passover season. This is likely why there's so many people that have come here. Likely why there's a lot of people, because it would draw people from all around. So we have our setting. To summarize, about a year has passed since chapter 5. It's Passover season. Uh, Jesus retreats to a mountainside near Tiberias to be alone with his disciples. Mark's gospel is helpful here. Remember I said that this is recorded in all four gospels. You should uh, read these uh, together um, this afternoon. A great thing to do this afternoon to see how the different gospel writers uh, tell the story, what they highlight. But Mark's gospel elaborates on this and tells us that Jesus instructs the disciples to come with him when he goes to rest. He's like, you've been working. We've been doing a lot. We need to have some rest. We need to go. We need to take some time to, to rest and, and just to be together. So this is what Jesus is trying to do here. He's trying to spend some time. He's resting with his disciples. But what happens? This large crowd Follow Jesus. It's probably around 10 to 15,000 people. We'll talk about that here in a moment. They follow Jesus because of the miracles that he's performing. Then we see that this crowd that is following Jesus has a great need. A need that they, they really don't even know that they have. Let's look in verses 5 through 9 as we see this problem, the conflict before us. So verse 5, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they to so many? Let's stop there. So here again, looking at Mark's gospel actually helps us to fill in some gaps here. Mark tells us that Jesus spent some time teaching this crowd that he actually spent some time with these people. He saw the crowd, and he, he taught them for a little while. Uh, this kind of gives us some insight into why he felt the need to feed them. He spent time with them. He's had them there under his teaching. But it also tells us that it's gotten a little late, and the people are hungry. They need to eat, and this is a problem. We all know that hungry crowds are not the friendliest people, are they? I mean, I don't like being around one hangry individual, much less thousands of them. Hangry and just uh, not very pleasant bunch. I mean, this is an extremely volatile situation that demands immediate attention. I mean, this is like there's something that's going on here that that has to be reconciled. These people are hungry. They're, they're starving. There are thousands of people that need to eat. So Jesus says to Philip, hey, Philip, where can we buy some bread? 
Where are we going to get the bread? What are we going to do to fix this situation? Why does he ask Philip? Why does he pick Philip here? Well, we learned earlier in chapter 1 that Philip was from the nearby town of Bethsaida. So this was a nearby town, so it was kind of like asking a local, like, hey, where can we go to find some bread around here? What's the, the closest spot? He's familiar with the area. He would know where to go. But notice that Jesus isn't really looking for Philip's great ability to get the greatest deal that would stretch their dollar. He's not really looking for the, the, who has the super savings of the week here. We read in verse 6, he, Jesus, said this to test him. He says this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So listen, Jesus knows what he's going to do in this situation. He had a plan. Like, Jesus isn't caught off guard here. He isn't wondering, like, oh, my goodness, how in the world am I going to fix this now? He has a plan. And his plan is to truly provide as the sovereign God does. I mean, this isn't a result of keeping the crowd longer than expected. Jesus is not scrambling to figure this out here. The text says Jesus asked him this to test him. And what does this mean? Well, most scholars would agree that Philip, or Jesus is testing Philip's faith here. Remember, Philip has walked with Jesus. He has witnessed many miracles of Jesus by now. He's seen Jesus do a lot of spectacular, extraordinary things. You know, I mean, I would think at this point, Philip would have said, like, hey, Jesus, remember that time we were at that wedding and that water, like, they ran out of wine? And remember you did that thing where you turned the, the water into wine? That was awesome. Can you do something else like that? Or, or remember that time you, you healed, healed that official son and you didn't even see that guy? Like, you, you want to do that, something else like that? Or, hey, remember that thing that just happened when you, you healed that man that had been uh, paralytic for uh, you know, almost all his life for 38 years, and you, you healed him, and he walked again. Remember all that controversy we went through? Like, I, you're God. You can do anything. I'm, surely you can create a meal for these people. Like, this is nothing for you, Jesus. I, I, can't you figure this out? I, I, you got it. I've been with you. You're my guy. But what happens? Like we all often do, Philip is only focused on the temporal solutions to the current problem at hand. It's all temporal. It's just, hey, what do we got? Yeah, we, 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 we can't fix this. We have nothing to supply the need at hand. He says 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough to give everyone, even a little. Now, one denarius was one day's pay for common laborers. So essentially what he's saying here is about seven to eight months worth of a salary 
is not enough to buy everyone that was there some bread in order to feed them even a little. He's like, we don't have enough money, Jesus. Like, do you not see these people? We don't have enough. We can't do this. What are you thinking? So they don't have enough money to feed the crowd. Uh, the other gospel writers tell us that Jesus tells the disciples to go into the crowd and actually kind of take some inventory, like see what they have, see what they can come up with. Jesus then also, we were told that the disciples say, like, what you should really do, Jesus, is send these people away. Like, and not necessarily in a bad way, but just, hey, they need to go eat, go, let them go on about themselves and, and figure out the food on their own. But Jesus is not having any of this. Jesus has a point to make here. After further investigation, we read that Andrew discovers there's a young lad that has packed his lunch. Good for him. Uh, we read that uh, there's one kid that has about five, we read the word loaves here, and then two fish. But we've got to remember, uh, this isn't what our Western minds would even think of when we think of loaves or fish here. First, the loaves mentioned would have been something like uh, small crackers or maybe like little snack cakes you might think of. Something small. We're not talking about the nice loaves of bread we go and purchase at the store when we're making spaghetti. Like, these are, we're talking about small little crackers. Something small. The fish mentioned here wasn't the finest yellowfin tuna either. I'm talking about some good sushi. I love some sushi. It's delicious. Probably talking about some pickled sardines here. Something very small. It was pickled to, to preserve it for uh, longer. And it was really used just to enhance the flavor of the five crackers that was there uh, and to provide maybe a little source of protein. The point is, is that Andrew finds that there's not enough to feed everyone. Like, this is all we have. Like, this will not suffice for this crowd. I want you to just picture yourself in this scene for a moment. Just picture yourself sitting there. You're hungry. Everyone's hungry. Your kids are hungry. Like, it, it's a pretty tumultuous situation. Jesus asks what is available to feed everyone without sending everyone away. And they come up with five crackers and two sardines for thousands of people. Here's what we got. Now listen, I can't help but think that Jesus intended for everyone around to really feel the weight of their need. To, to really feel the the gravity of their need in this situation. And I think it's right to pause and ask ourselves, do we really understand our helplessness? Do we really understand our need for Jesus to intervene in our lives? Like we weren't doing okay and then Jesus stepped in. Like we were dead in our trespasses. 
Like, we are, we are helpless. We showed up to the picnic, and we didn't pack a lunch. We're helpless here. We are just like this crowd in the sense that we contribute nothing to receive the benefits of Jesus Christ. Listen, this isn't a moral story telling us that we need to give all that we have to Jesus so he can multiply it and do a lot with it. Yes, there's moral implications here that we should be generous. That's not the point of this story. This story emphasizes the biblical truth that Jesus Christ is the great provider supplying our needs when we have nothing to offer. Nothing. We see here that Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, does not just provide something simple. He provides above and beyond what we could expect. Let's look here at the resolution in verses 10 through 13. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. Then verse 13, so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So we see a resolution here. We see that Jesus Christ has intervened and has provided a solution. First, Jesus tells everybody to sit down. Notice the order that Jesus chose here. He, once again, he's, he's, not, he's not running frantic. He says, just sit down. I've got this. He creates this order in a very chaotic situation. It, to have this type of presence and command over thousands of people, especially thousands of hangry people, really shows his power, his authority. Jesus isn't panicking. He brings a sense of stability and order to the crowd, just as he does in every situation. This can also be symbolic as uh, we're reminded of uh, how Moses, in the time of the Exodus in chapter 18, remember what he does to the people in the wilderness. He sits them down. He puts them in groups. He says, here we are going to be in these different groups in order. So this would have likely brought this type of picture, kind of depicting this scene for this crowd's mind. Remember, I said the timing of this is very important. The fact that the Passover is near is not coincidental. The typology is pointing to the new exodus that Jesus Christ has arrived to accomplish. He said, I will take them from the bondage of sin, the bondage of death, and he himself is the deliverer who will be the sacrificial lamb. That is, I mean, we've got to see that here. That's important for us to note. We read that about 5,000 men sit down here. 
And notice that John just says the men. But if we look at Matthew's account, he writes, And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So about 5,000 men we can say were present, but also there's women and children. So, I mean, if you just double that number, which would be a very conservative uh, assumption, uh, we would say there's around 10,000 people. Jesus grabs the loaves, the crackers, and he gives thanks. Uh, Just side note, this is something we should all do before we partake of a meal. Give thanks to the Lord because he's provided every single thing that we have. But I just wonder, like, what are the people thinking at this point? This is a pretty bizarre way for someone to act in light of the situation at hand. I mean, he's told them, you know, hey, everybody sit down. And I want you to just imagine, maybe I have like a, a Lunchable. You know those little, like, packs, those little Lunchable packs? They've got like four or five crackers in them. They've got a couple of pieces of not very good meat and some cheese. The good ones have a cookie, you know. Like these little tiny things. And just imagine for a moment that I said, hey, all right, everyone sit down. We're going to eat. And I, I hold this little Lunchable up. And I start to pray, and, and I say, all right, here we got it. We've got it. Thank you, Lord, for providing for us. We're going to eat so good. And whatever Jesus had said, there's probably a Jewish customary prayer that Jesus prayed here that would be very familiar to giving thanks for the provisions at hand. Just imagine the scene. Imagine the, the thought, the the attention that Jesus is drawn to himself here in this moment. Where he's giving thanks, he's showing himself. He's just saying, like, God will provide. God is going to provide in this moment. You have a real physical, tangible need, and God is going to provide for us. And what happens? Jesus does that. He creates enough food for everyone to have as much as they wanted. So much, we read that they get full. Like, they they don't just have enough to satisfy. They get full. They're full on the provision, this food, this, create, this creative miracle that Jesus essentially takes something from nothing and he creates in front of them. I mean, this reminds us that those who humbly approach God in times of need will never leave disappointed. He always provides what we need in every single situation. Paul reminds us in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, when he's closing out his letter to the church in Philippi, and he's saying, and my God will supply every need, every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Notice he says every need here. Everything. Now listen, this doesn't mean that we'll have everything we want according to our natural desires. 
Jesus, we just get everything we want. We, we get it all now. But it does mean that God will provide above and beyond for his people. Listen, God doesn't always give us exactly what we, he, he doesn't give us exactly what we want, but he always gives us what we need, right? He always provides for us exactly how we need it. Here we read that not only did everyone get full, but there were tons of leftovers. A lot of stuff left over here. So much that they were able to gather 12 baskets full. They, they go around, they, they collect the leftover fragments, they, they pick up the pieces of what's left over. Notice that Jesus doesn't waste anything. Uh, that should be very uh, instructive for those that have much. We should not be um, just extravagant in our spending, in our, uh, the way that we treat our extras. Jesus is intentional here. He says, go and gather the fragments. We're going to do something with them here. Notice the number 12, and this is likely a parallel for uh, the 12 tribes of Israel and also the 12 apostles, the disciples uh, that are here. This just further emphasizes the fact that Jesus is going to provide for all of his people. He's going to provide for those that he has come to save, to redeem. He will provide exactly what is needed. And church, I I just have to ask you, do you truly believe that? Do you believe that today? Do you believe that Jesus will provide all that you need in every situation? I mean, where do you look at in times of need? Like, where do you run to in times of desperation? What do you do when you're desperate for nourishment, for rest? Is it just your favorite Netflix episode, or is it God's Word? Is it the affection of another person? Is it the affection of the world, where do you look to in times of need? Is it the ability to get more stuff, to do more things, or do you rest in Jesus Christ? Do you run to Christ, trusting that he will provide everything that you need? When you're weary, you're tired, you're just, just worn out. And it would feel really good to veg out, right? Just, just not think of anything, not do anything. Rest is good. That type of rest is good. But rest in Christ far surpasses anything that entertainment, anything that recreation could ever provide us. We must be a people that run to Christ, trusting that no matter what it is, no matter what it is, we must first and foremost find our rest in Christ. 13th century thinker Thomas Aquinas once said, We set forth our petitions before God, not in order to make him known, make our needs known to him, but rather so that we ourselves may realize that in these things it is necessary to turn to God for help. Remind ourselves that 
We must turn to God. We must turn to the Lord. We must trust that, that God is who he says he is. And beloved, Christ is the great provider. And, and he's always eager to help those who turn to him for help. And listen, this is true that those that, for those that may be unbelievers in this room today. Those that may have not listened to a word I have said, may have been checking Instagram for likes. Jesus Christ can answer all that you're looking for outside. He is the answer to whatever problem you have. He is the answer to whatever depravities you hold. Jesus Christ is not only the miracle worker that turned a small lunch into a feast for thousands, but he is the one who died on the cross and miraculously rose from the grave, conquering death once and for all. And we are told that all who repent of their sins and turn to Christ by faith and repent and believe and pursue Jesus will have his provisions forever. Praise be to God. That is the promise, the gospel. My prayer is that we would see this today, that we would see Christ as glorious, as the one who provides above and beyond by giving himself for our greatest need, our spiritual hunger, our spiritual lack. What good is it to gain the world if we lose our souls? Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. And as we look at this familiar story of Jesus feeding this crowd, which really sets up the rest of this extraordinary chapter, I, I want to ask you, how will you leave here thinking of Jesus? Believer, unbeliever, how will you leave here thinking about Jesus? Is he an added substitute to your life? like the creamer in your coffee that just makes it a little better? Just some seasoning that you, you throw on when things isn't, isn't as flavorful as you want it to be? You, you got your backpack, Jesus. You, you put them all on your back and you, you carry them into church with you, but when you get home, you take them right off. I mean, what is Jesus Christ to you? Is he your Lord? Is he your Savior? Is he everything to you? Is his word important to you? Is his instruction, his care, is knowing him your greatest desire? How will you leave here thinking of Jesus? Because as we close here quickly, we see that there are many people that miss the point. They miss the point of Jesus. And that's exactly what we see happen in this story here. They, this crowd totally misses the point of what Jesus wants them to see. Look at verses 14 and 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So the miracle has been performed here. The people 
are fed. I mean, they've just witnessed something extraordinary here. And they're excited. I mean, they're, they're amped up here. They're worked up to the point they decide, hey, we're going to make this man our king. We're going to make him our king. I mean, man, he's provided everything for us. He's given us some food. He's taught us some good things. I mean, let, let's make him our king. And listen, make no mistake, brothers and sisters, Jesus is king. He is king. We don't decide to make him king in our lives. We follow him as king. He has authority, the kingdom, that will never be matched. But Christ's kingdom is not the earthly kingdom as these people wanted him to develop at this point in time. This is not how Jesus intended it to be. This is their idea of how they're going to make him king, how he's going to come and he's going to do all the things that they want him to do in order to make their lives better. They say this is indeed the prophet who is come into the world. This is a reference to uh, Moses in Deuteronomy 18, 15, where Moses tells the people, the Lord, will the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among you from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So Jesus is indeed this prophet. I mean, they, they knew this here. He's the prophet that they should listen to. But this crowd is looking for Jesus to deliver them from their worldly rulers and create a worldly kingdom now, the here and now. They want the worldly kingdom. They don't want the eternal kingdom that Jesus Christ came to produce. If you remember in John 18, when Pilate is interrogating Jesus before his crucifixion, Pilate asked Jesus who he is and what he came to do. What does Jesus reply? In verse 36, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. He says, this is a part of the plan. I must be handed over in order to inaugurate the true eternal kingdom. No, you will not make me king now in the way that you have designed it. I am the king that has come. And my kingdom is far beyond anything that could be conjured up by humanity. What are we going to do and how are we going to bless this king in our earthly sphere in the way that they wanted to at this point. This crowd is essentially just looking for more physical blessing. They're looking for a king that's going to keep them fed, keep them healthy, keep them prosperous here and now. And listen, Jesus is capable of doing all of that. He's absolutely capable of doing all of those things, but Jesus Christ's message is not one of health, wealth, and prosperity now. His message is one of self-sacrificing, cross-carrying. Follow me and prepare to die if you have to. And that is the message of Jesus Christ. 
And as we do, we trust that the best is yet to come. Here we see Jesus retreat. He removes himself from the situation and says that nothing will stop my plan and my path to Calvary. Because that's the only plan that will actually provide humanity the provisions that they truly need. And that's redemption and reconciliation to Creator God. That's our greatest need, brothers and sisters. So as we close and we reflect and as we are about to witness the baptism of two young ladies who have professed Christ and have now decided to, to follow Christ and, and turn to him and truly believe that he is who he says he is. As God has worked in their lives, and we'll hear stories about that here in just a moment, just ask you a couple of questions to just think on. It's just very simple. Have you missed the point? Have you spent your life missing the point of who Jesus is? Is your faith journey a journey of, I, I just haven't really seen Jesus for who you've described him today, what this story really shows us of Christ? My encouragement to you, if that's you, is to spend the next few moments as we transition to a time of song and baptism to just pray. And ask the Lord to work in your heart, to open your eyes, to renew your heart, to soften your heart to his truth. The Holy Spirit would work in and through this text to bring you to salvation. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much. The kindness demonstrated in and through Jesus Christ, the compassion demonstrated that our, our Savior would, would provide everything we need, that he would give himself a ransom for many. And Father, I pray that those under the sound of my voice here in this moment would truly see Christ for who he is. That, Lord, we would be quick to run to Christ in every situation, in every need, that we would Trust that he will provide exactly what is needed. That we would then use that motivation to tell others the good news of the gospel. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen.